You're listening to the Fitness and Wellness Class, powered by NASM. NASM's new subscription service, NASM Connected, is the best value in fitness. When you sign up, you'll get access to everything you'll need to expand your career, master new disciplines, and stay up to date with your certification in one great package. Gain instant access to over 350 online fitness courses available anywhere, anytime, on any device. Earn CEUs for dozens of approved providers. Plus, unlock articles, webinars, videos, and podcasts from the biggest names in fitness. Don't wait. Sign up today and unlock the best content in fitness at the best price. Get connected at nasm.org connected or call one 800 460 6276. Hi, in this presentation, I'm going to be talking about nutrition strategies to support adaptations to strength and conditioning. So, just to give you a quick bit of background as to who I am, my name is Dr. Laurent Bannock, and I am the founder and CEO of the Institute Performance Nutrition in London. And I have uh, 30, uh, just over 30 years of experience working in the health and fitness industry. Uh, and actually, it all started with an NASM uh, certified personal trainer certification. So I'm particularly grateful for this opportunity to come back years later uh, as very much progressed in my career as a sports scientist and a performance uh, nutritionist, where I've been working with Olympic athletes, professional uh, sports teams, primarily soccer, um, and uh, most recently at the FIFA World Cup, where you can see my photo here where I was working with a sports team, uh, traveling all around the world, working with elite athletes. So the topics I'm going to cover today um, will be, we're going to get into an introduction to nutrition and adaptations to strength conditioning. And then we're going to break it down into some key areas because it's such a big topic, such a big area, that there is no way we could cover this in the hour or so that we have today. In fact, it's years worth of, of education uh, can be devoted to this topic. So what I've got is um, six specific topics that I wanted to share with you to give you an idea of some of the, the, the more established areas um, within sport and exercise nutrition that can be used as uh, strategies within um, strength conditioning. So we're going to talk about high protein diets and body composition. We're also going to talk about something called the anabolic window and muscle adaptations. We're going to talk about creatine monohydrate and exercise. We're also going to talk about branch chain amino acids and muscle protein synthesis. And we're going to talk about antioxidants and exercise adaptations. And finally, we're going to get into beta alanine and exercise performance. Uh, some of these things you'll be familiar with. Some of these things might be new to you. But by the time uh, we finish this presentation today, I hope you will find uh, all of these topics of considerable interest and you can use them in your, in your work going forwards. So firstly, let's just quickly introduce this concept of nutrition as a strategy and approach that can be used to support the strength conditioning training that you're doing with your clients and indeed for yourselves. Sports nutrition or sport and exercise nutrition or performance nutrition, as it's also known, is a very interesting field. It's become an area that has exploded in sports science, sport and exercise science. And you can see here in this slide just some of the areas where the evidence is starting to emerge um, on how nutrition can play varying levels of uh, significance in training and adaptation, um, both for gym goers, but also for elite athletes and even in clinical exercise settings. Uh, there's um, a huge amount um, of focus now going towards sports nutrition in this area. But the most important thing that we always need to bear in mind is that our number one priority is going to be the health of our athlete, the health of our client. Um, now, sport and exercise nutrition is quite a complex area in reality because when we're considering the advice, the recommendations, the strategies that we want to recommend to, to our athletes, to our clients, we need to 
look at three main areas, which is one's day-to-day nutrition. So that's things like the daily diet, uh, energy balance and availability, which I'll discuss later, uh, body composition, and also things like personal preference, because each and every single one of us is different. We have different needs, different likes, and different preferences as a result of that. We are, of course, interested in fitness and performance. For some people, it may just be altering body composition so they look great. Uh, there might be health um, implications for the uh, health purposes for the training, um, or there might indeed be performance-related outcomes that we're working towards. So we also need to bear in mind those goals. There also could be health and medical issues, which might be existing health problems, um, although scope of practice, of course, would be important here. But we also might be wanting to prevent health problems or we might be uh, wanting to support or treat health problems, depending on your scope of practice. So this whole area of physical fitness, fitness training, sport and exercise, uh, science in general is a big one. And when we're working with, with athletes, with our clients, we have to bear in mind that there's a lot of things going on and there's a lot of contributing uh, elements to um, their approach to their health and their fitness and their performance outcomes. And nutrition, of course, is just part of this bigger picture. But when you work with sport and exercise, nutrition is your main priority, your main focus, if you like, in your work, as I do as a, as a registered performance nutritionist. I always find that we're having to flip our athletes' nutrition priorities or our, our clients' nutrition priorities, which tends to be more focused on things like supplements, um, fad diets and such, as, a, as opposed to uh, getting the basics right. And we would, we would look at this as a food-first approach, as what we're trying to uh, do with our performance nutrition strategies. And I'll, um, I'll get into that in some more detail, where here, for example, you can see an expanded diagram that I've created where we would look at what's called the popular approach to uh, performance nutrition or sport and exercise nutrition. And in terms of one's hierarchy of priority, the, the top-down strategy, which is what most people tend to do, and by most people, I mean the general public, what we see in uh, social media, for example, and the popular press, is where um, the priority might be on things like supplements, possibly on factors such as timing uh, of your nutrition interventions, i.e. You know, consuming a certain mixture of uh, substances in your post-workout shake right after training is given some priority in that approach. Uh, maybe we need to eat uh, high amounts or low amounts of carbohydrate. Uh, there's a great deal of interest in, uh, in protein, of course. Um, and then maybe the last thing that, that people tend to look at in this hierarchy is things like the total amount of food that a person might eat and the quality of that diet, i.e. is it rich in uh, fruits and vegetables, vitamins and minerals and fiber, the basic things that the body needs uh, for life. Simple factors such as that are uh, clearly important, but oftentimes are not necessarily the first thing that people focus on. So what the evidence actually points towards is what we would refer to here as a bottom-up strategy, where we will prioritize the basics um, before we move upwards in this hierarchy of priority. And you can see here that I have uh, put this down into an easy-to-remember set of terms. So we've got total type and timing, and then finally supplements. But total type and timing is very much the approach that we would take as an evidence-based practitioner in sport and exercise nutrition, where you can see um, quite clearly here the elements of that approach. And we'll expand upon these in my, in my talk here. So let's get into these main areas then. Um, and the first one that we're gonna get into is perhaps the most popular one, which would be um, the relationship that a high-protein diet can have to body composition or, or optimal body composition. My approach for these sections, by the way, will be to present to you what the, uh, the science is, um, what the information out there is, and then we'll break down the science and then apply it uh, 
um, translate it, if you like, into what we need to take from that for practice to inform your decisions, to inform the advice you give your, your uh, clients. So we know that an energy deficit is crucial to induce a reduction in um, body weight. And typically, the goal here is to promote high quality fat loss. And by high quality, of course, what we're talking about is reducing um, body fat as opposed to losing muscle mass. The obvious aim here, of course, having looked at that diagram, is that you can see that what we're really trying to do is not just lose weight. We don't want just to lose body fat. We also want to retain as much lean tissue as possible, which is what we mean by this concept of a high quality fat loss. So when we look at the research, we can see that skeletal muscle loss can account for more than 25% of the total amount of actual weight lost. And this is certainly not uh, ideal because it can impede further weight loss. It can compromise performance. Muscle mass being lost, of course, will affect the body's ability to uh, move things, lift things. Um, therefore, you can see the obvious relationship there. And when we look at the, um, the diet in this regard, what we're talking about, or at least what the evidence is telling us, is that high-protein diets, which would be 1.5 to 3, 3 grams per kilogram per day, have been shown to attenuate uh, the loss of muscle mass during caloric restriction. What that means is that that amount of protein has been shown to help prevent the, um, the, the risks associated, if you like, with the potential to lose muscle mass in an energy deficit. So this is, this is, this is an exciting area because what it means is that we can alter the diet, uh, even in an energy deficit, to bring about what we're now referring to as this high-quality um, fat loss. So we're talking about an evidence-based perspective here. So we want to be looking at what some of this research is actually telling us. And for example, in this study that you can see here, which is a randomized control study published in a highly respected journal, they explored the effects of varying levels of dietary protein on body composition and muscle protein synthesis during such an energy um, deficit. And in this study, what they did is they looked at 39 overweight adults, which were split into three groups, differing only in the amount of protein they actually consumed in their diet, um, which was 0.8 grams per kilogram a day, which is the RDA for protein, the recommended daily amount. The other group, or the second group, had twice the RDA of protein, which was 1.6 grams per kilogram per day. And the third group consumed... 2.4 grams per kilogram per day. So that was the three groups that were assessed in this study. And for 10 days prior to the intervention, they also consumed a weight maintenance diet. And this was then followed by 21 days of being in a 40% energy deficit. So what did they actually find? What were the findings from this research? Well, what they found was that the total amount of body weight lost was similar between conditions. However, the source of this weight loss was actually different between conditions. And this is where the key to this study is. And this is the key to this concept, which is that the proportion of weight loss due to reductions in fat mass was actually lower and that the loss of fat mass was higher in those receiving twice and three times the RDA um, of this protein as compared to those just consuming the average uh, amount as seen in the RDA. We also could see that there was no significant differences between twice the RDA and three times the RDA. Now, if, you're, uh, if you found yourself finding that your brain was starting to explode over that, I'm gonna give you some of the key take-home messages from what all that evidence tells us on this concept of protein and, or high-protein diets and body composition. 
And that is that consuming dietary protein at levels above the RDA actually spared this fat-free mass while promoting the loss of body fat in response to a short-term moderate energy deficit. Now, beyond that, we also know that consuming dietary protein at levels beyond twice the current RDA did not confer further fat-free mass protection in this sample of uh, test subjects. However, it may well be different for athletes and the elderly because their needs are slightly different, of course. So what is the key take-home message to this? Well, normal and overweight individuals, as well as athletes, will likely benefit from consuming more dietary protein than current recommendations for healthy weight loss during periods of an unavoidable or a planned energy deficit. Now, I've only scratched the surface on this topic, so I do recommend that you consider reading more on this, and also I've got some listening uh, to recommend to you. So firstly, um, we have this uh, uh, consensus paper, this position stand that I helped co-author uh, by the International so Society of Sports Nutrition, um, and their position stand on diets and body composition is um, one paper that I would refer you to, specifically pages seven to eight in that paper. I also recommend that you listen to one of my podcasts that I did on this, episode 100, with the lead authors of that paper, um, uh, Alan Aragon and Professor Brad Schoenfeld. Right, so we've dealt with um, high-protein diets and body composition. And what we're now going to discuss is a very particularly interesting area which you more than likely have heard of is this concept of the anabolic window um, and its actual impact on muscle adaptations. So what is the anabolic window of opportunity? If you have been working in the fitness industry, particularly if you're involved in strength conditioning or physique preparation, for example, you'll be sure to have heard of this term the anabolic window of opportunity. And the anabolic window is a term that is used to describe this, this time period um, that occurs after training sessions, after exercise sessions, where the body is supposedly primed to utilize protein and stimulate muscle anabolism, muscle growth, gains, etc. And this window is hypothesized to last between 30 to 120 minutes. And that doesn't really present us uh, with too many opportunities to, uh, to feed if this is true. So we need to explore this because it is, it is not uncommon for people to get into high states of anxiety when they're leaving the gym and they've realized that they've forgotten their protein shake or they uh, are not able to eat in the near future. And they're concerned that this is going to have some kind of negative impact on their gains from, uh, from their training sessions. So... Hang on there. Let me just uh, double back on my slide that we just managed to run through. Keep this real for you. So, um, it's coming, I promise. This is not a planned event. Right. Okay. So, Okay, sorry, bear with me. So as such, many athletes um, and also, as I said, regular people in the gym presume that they must consume food in this window. Um, and what I'm trying to help you understand here is that this may not actually be necessary in order to still get optimal um, muscle gains, uh, optimal stimulation of muscle growth and adaptation. So... Let's go back to the research on this topic. And here is a paper by uh, Brad Schoenfeld, where in his recent research, his group showed that the anabolic window may not be as short as once um, thought. And in this study, what they did is they looked at 21 resistant trained men where um, they were assigned to one of two different experimental groups in their study. Um, in the pre-training group, 
They consumed a supplement that contained 25 grams of protein and one grams of carb uh, immediately prior to exercise. And in the post-training group, they consumed a supplement that contained 25 grams of protein and one grams of carb immediately after their training session to see uh, what happens in those two different situations. And each group followed a 10-week whole body resistance training program um, of three sessions per week. So what about the diet? Well, again, my slides have skipped. I'm trying to get my slides back. Please bear with me, folks. We can make this more entertaining in a live event, guys. Right, okay, we're back. So, what about the diet? So, in terms of protein, they consume 1.8 grams per kilogram of body mass. Uh, as far as fat is concerned, they consume 25 to 30% of total energy intake. And uh, for their carbohydrates, they uh, made up the remaining balance of, of their diet, their, their calories, and the energy target total was 500 calories um, surplus, surplus. So what were the measurements um, in this uh, research project? Well, they took body composition via DEXA, dual X-ray axiometry, which is um, uh, arguably uh, the gold standard for body composition analysis. They also measured muscle thickness via ultrasound imaging techniques. Um, and they assessed maximal strength through bench press and parallel back squats. And all measures were taken at baseline um, at T1 and midpoint of the study at T2 and after the final exercise session at T3. So what did they find? Well, you can see here that um, a variety of findings were identified where a significant reduction in total fat mass between time points T1 and T3 occurred. And this was likely explained by the fact that the participants fell into a hypocaloric balance. But it's important to understand that there was no significant difference in fat mass change between these groups. And this is pretty, pretty important. But before we explore what that means, let's quickly look at what the findings were for total lean mass. And here again, you can see the findings from the research. And neither group demonstrated significant gains in lean mass of the arms or legs over the course of this study. And again, this could be explained by the fact that the participants fell into a hypocaloric balance which is why energy balance is such an interesting area. And of course, there was no significant differences in lean mass or changes between the groups. So we also, well, they also looked at maximal strength. And what did they find? Well, in the one rep max squat, they found um, that this was significantly greater at time point three compared with time point one. Similarly, the one rep max bench uh, tended to increase from time point one to time point three. And however, though, there was no significant differences were observed between the groups. And what about muscle thickness? Well, as you know, they looked at that and only the bicep thickness tended to be greater in the post supplement group than the pre supplementation group. However, this difference was really small and might arguably not be significant at all in the real world. And there were minimal changes in other hypertrophic measures over, uh, over the time of this study between the groups as well. And this is where we can now try and take home what some of this, this research means, what some of these numbers, what some of the science is actually telling us. So in the study I've just presented to you, the presence of a narrow anabolic window of opportunity was not present. They did not see that. Um, 
since changes in body composition and strength were no different between the two conditions. And that's a key aspect to this study. We also know as such that the authors advocate trainees to choose freely based on individual preference and availability, whether to consume protein immediately pre or post exercise. They raise awareness that the uh, participants in the study were in a caloric deficit, which is not uncommon, of course, and results may be different in a state of hypercaloric balance, something um, which researchers are looking at, but not in this particular study. So ultimately, our tip on this is going to be that for optimal muscle growth and adaptation, you should aim to ingest high quality protein in sufficient amounts relative to your goals uh, and regularly through, uh, throughout the day whilst you're awake, of course. And a good target to aim for is 20 to 40 grams every three to four hours. So as before, here's a couple of um, recommendations for reading and listening on this topic. So... Once again, um, we have an ISSN uh, position stand to point you towards. This one is on nutrient timing. Um, that entire paper is of great value to you, which does uh, look not only into this topic of high-protein diets um, and uh, body composition, as previously mentioned, but also um, uh, the anabolic window, but timing in general. And the lead author of that paper, I also interviewed in one of my podcasts, which you can see which you can see right here. Okay, so now we're going to move on to um, creatine monohydrate and exercise performance. Now, this is a big, a big topic because, of course, creatine monohydrate uh, or creatine specifically is an extremely popular uh, supplement. It's not just popular. The research on this area of um, sport and exercise nutrition is vast. And by vast, it's it's one of the largest, if not the largest areas of research. Uh, more than anything else, you will find um, papers and studies and research on this in the uh, evidence base. So creatine is probably the most single studied product in the history of all dietary supplements. And um, Creatine supplementation can potentially impact exercise performance through a number of different mechanisms, which we're about to um, explore here. The most direct is by increasing muscle stores of phosphocreatine. And in the body, creatine is changed into phosphocreatine. Sorry, in the body, creatine is changed into phosphocreatine, which is an important source of adenosine triphosphate um, energy, which is found in the muscle tissue. And when a muscle contracts, adenosine triphosphate is broken down and energy is released. And um, this phosphocreatine serves as a storage res reservoir for regenerating ATP, thereby allowing energy production to continue at a really high rate. And that's the key to this, is the, is the speed um, of this replenishment. So supplementing with creatine increases the volume of inorganic phosphate to power this important energy production. And as I mentioned, there's a large body of evidence that shows that creatine supplementation leads to an improvement in not just training generally or adaptations to our efforts in the gym or in, uh, on the track, but also specifically in high-intensity interval training. Um, and other potential benefits might also uh, include greater gains in muscle mass when combined with strength training, but also enhanced glycogen or carbohydrate storage, and also limiting the amount of muscle damage and improving uh, recovery following extensive training would uh, be another three potential benefits to creatine usage or creatine monohydrate. Now, as I've also, or as I've already indicated, um, you may have heard of the term creatine and you may have heard of the term creatine monohydrate, but you also may have heard of other types of creatine. So beyond the familiar creatine uh, monohydrate, you're also going to find creatine in an effervescent form, 
Um, there's creatine serum, creatine phosphate, creatine ethyl ester, and many more. But what's important to understand here is that the vast majority of studies have actually been done on creatine monohydrate. Um, and that's where the evidence comes from, not the other types of creatine or other sources of creatine. And the other alternatives tend to be more expensive, oddly, despite the lack of evidence. Um, and yet um, there is little or no research on those products, which is important to be mindful of. And therefore, there is little or no reason to expect other alternatives to outperform creatine monohydrate. And this is why creatine monohydrate is so respected and the one that you want to um, be aiming for. So I think there's a fair case that we're going to want to use it. And we know specifically that we want to use creatine monohydrate. But is creatine actually safe? And as I mentioned before, health or safety in your athletes, your clients is your primary uh, focus. And there is the potential for creatine to negatively impact upon the kidneys or liver. And you'll have heard this um, before potentially. However, the context of that concern is that it is only likely to be a risk amongst individuals of a pre-existing kidney or liver condition. There is no evidence that creatine is of concern in any other scenario, despite the, the myths that you may have heard out there. And so there is zero research that has shown a negative impact on uh, healthy individuals. So as long as it is a healthy individual, creatine is something that absolutely could and should be considered for the reasons that I have discussed. And also, if you're working with elite or professional athletes, um, it is important that you make sure there's no um, uh, substances that could lead them to um, being banned in their various categories of sports. So you want to make sure that they're not um, under any doping risk. And therefore, you would want to make sure that your products that you're purchasing are not just high quality, but they're also tested for banned substances, for example, in form sport being one good example. So recommended reading and listening on the topic of creatine. Um, you should again look at one of these uh, position stands that I have for you here. This is a recent paper, uh, another consensus statement by the ISSN um, on the safety and efficacy of creatine supplementation, exercise, sport, and medicine. I highly recommend that you uh, that you uh, read that one. And once again, I've done a podcast with one of the authors of of that paper and a world-renowned professor on the topic, uh, Professor Darren Kandau. Um, on creatine monohydrate exercise and sport. And I've got a bunch of other podcasts on the same topic that you might wish to uh, learn uh, more on this topic from. Okay, so we're uh, rapidly moving forwards on this topic now. So BCAAs, branch chain amino acids and muscle protein synthesis. Let's get into this one. So in order to understand the relevance of all this, we need to quickly review um, the regulation of muscle mass. And skeletal muscle is constantly being turned over, as you know, which means that it's being synthesized or created and degraded or broken down simultaneously. And this happens to get rid of old proteins and replace them with new ones. And in order to gain muscle mass, however, protein synthetic rates must be greater than their rates of degradation. If the opposite occurs, what we're actually going to do is lose muscle mass. Now, muscle anabolism or muscle gain is driven by stimulating protein synthesis rather than inhibiting the breakdown. Although in theory, this could cause anabolism too. And this is why this topic is of great interest. So what is this theoretical basis of BCAA supplementation in this context then? And that is that BCAA supplements claim to increase anabolism. But how exactly does this occur? Well, in order to understand this, let's just quickly review what branch chain amino acids actually are. And of course, they're amino acids. 
and there's 20 of them as you can see here. And 11 of these amino acids are classed as non-essential and the other nine are classed as essential. And 11 of these non-essential and the other nine of which essential um, as described, of those nine essential, three are what we call the branch chain amino acids, which you can see here is isoleucine, leucine and valine. Now, the supplement industry will claim many things, of course, and as it relates to branch chain amino acids, they will claim that BCAAs can increase protein synthesis, uh, decrease protein breakdown, and increase lean mass. But what actually is the evidence for this? What, what is this actually based upon? Well, the BCAA leucine can activate proteins that initiate muscle protein synthesis. And in research, where they've infused BCAAs into rats, it does increase rates of muscle protein synthesis. And this means that rats probably have an ample amino acid pool to permit the translation to muscle proteins. But BCAAs in humans, uh, although BCAAs in humans can activate muscle protein synthesis, they cannot sustain translation. And this is because BCAAs alone don't provide all of the essential amino acids and humans don't have a big enough amino acid pool in the post-absorptive state to support the increases in muscle protein synthesis rates. So muscle protein anabolism therefore requires all the amino acids, not just the BCAAs. So significant increases in muscle protein synthesis in the post-absorptive state requires all of these amino acids that you can see. And why is that? Well, the only source of essential amino acids in the post-absorptive state is from muscle breakdown. And about 70% of these amino acids are released by muscle protein breakdown are actually reincorporated back into the muscle protein. But BCAAs cannot significantly increase the reincorporation of essential amino acids into muscle. And since BCAAs can only inhibit muscle protein breakdown, this causes even less essential amino acids to be available for muscle protein synthesis. So for this fundamental reason, a dietary supplement of branching amino acids alone cannot support a sustained increase in muscle protein synthesis. So there you have it. That's what the evidence tells us. So let's derive the take-home messages from this information then, this evidence from the research. The first take-home message then on this topic is that claims that BCAAs alone increase muscle anabolism in humans are not evidence-based, i.e. by the supplement industry. Significant, sorry, specific amino acids such as leucine may act as an anabolic trigger but they will not result in sustained muscle protein synthesis unless a full complement of amino acids are actually available for translation. And this means that consuming a complete protein such as whey is much more effective for stimulating and sustaining muscle protein synthesis rates resulting in anabolism. So we can boil this down to the fact that the claims that BCAAs alone cause muscle anabolism are very much untrue. And this is because it is not physiologically possible for this to actually happen. So, as usual, I'm going to recommend some uh, reading to you guys. And uh, firstly, because it's a really, uh, a really big paper on this topic, I recommend that you read this paper here. Uh, on branch chain amino acids and muscle protein synthesis in humans, myth or reality by Professor Bob Wolf, who's pretty much the top, the top guy in the world on this topic. It's uh, still very readable. It's pretty, pretty technical, but it's still very readable. You must read it if you're interested in this topic. And for recommended uh, listening, I can recommend uh, a couple of podcasts that I've done with leading researchers. Um, 
These two here in particular, uh, protein supplementation and resistant exercise with Dr. Rob Morton, highly recommend that one. And of course, um, the gods on this topic, so to speak, Professor Stu Phillips and Professor Kevin Tipton um, in episode 96. You must listen to that too, where we get into this in great detail and they will help you understand this topic thoroughly and in great uh, detail. And finally, this uh, podcast on protein quality in the food matrix, you'll find this of interest as it relates to this concept of food first, not just getting protein from supplements, but also from food sources where the food matrix may provide more benefits than the isolated or synthetic sources of uh, protein that you can get in supplements. Okay, so um, what we're going to look at now is this really interesting area of uh, antioxidants and exercise adaptions. So in order to understand this in more detail, we need to take a look at exercise and reactive oxygen-nitrogen species, ROSs and RNSs. Now, ROSs and RNSs are unstable molecules that are byproducts of metabolism. Absolutely normal. They do occur in, um, in exercising individuals. But excessive amounts can deplete the body's defenses and cause damage to cells, resulting in exercise-induced muscle damage and muscle soreness. And these mitochondria within these muscles, which are the powerhouses of the cells, are the key site of ROS and RNS production due to this increased levels of oxidative metabolism during exercise. And what happens is, is that this re results in an increase in levels of ROSs and RNSs, and this will result in oxidative damage within the muscle. So that's the mechanism. The way the body deals with this is through an antioxidant de defense mechanism that helps to keep this within tolerable limits. So that makes us think about the potential for nutritional antioxidants and their potential impact for um, dealing with ROSs and RNSs. And of course, this is why antioxidant supplements have become popular um, in exercising individuals. And when we look at the evidence, we can see that two antioxidants known as vitamin C, ascorbate, and vitamin E, uh, tocopherol, have been shown to have some uh, potential benefits. So in general, vitamins A, C, and E are dietary sources of antioxidants, and they help form the natural antioxidant defense system that the body uses to protect their cells from these excessive levels of ROSs and RNS um, damage. And many studies have tried to use vitamin C and vitamin E in the form of supplements to attenuate these exercise-induced ROS and RNS uh, levels to try and minimize cellular damage and enhance the adaptive response to exercise. So the question here is, can additional antioxidants minimize these effects of ROS and RNS? And although it's a good question, the answer from the evidence is that no, not appreciably. Vitamin E is unlikely to be able to attenuate any of the ROS and RNS generated by exercise. That's what the evidence tells us. Although vitamin C may have the capacity to reduce one key oxidant, and that is known as superoxide. And the real question is, we can do this, but do we really want to get rid of these oxidants? This is very much what I would call a you can but should you situation. And that's because ROSs and RNSs are important for exercise adaptations. And research shows that if anything, vitamin C and E supplementation can actually hamper exercise adaptations. And the interesting part of this is understanding why. And this is probably through attenuating exercise-induced superoxide, which is a potent oxidant and also acts as a stress signal. So what happens is 
during exercise, there is an increase in these ROS and RNS levels, which forms um, this acute stress within the body or within the muscles. And this actually leads to muscle adaptations, which is the reason why this stress leads to the adaptations that we're looking for. So what then are going to be the take-home messages from this evidence? Well, firstly, there is moderate to low quality evidence that high-dose antioxidant supplementation may slightly reduce muscle soreness. However, these reductions were so small that they were unlikely to make any difference, and so it does not result in a clinically relevant reduction of muscle soreness after exercise. The other take-home message that we need to look at here is um, that there is no evidence available on subjective recovery and only limited evidence on the adverse effects of taking antioxidant supplements. And the emerging research shows that chronic antioxidant supplementation may actually be counterproductive. And antioxidant supplements may actually delay healing and recovery from exercise and therefore hinder your hard-earned adaptations to training and may even increase mortality, which is pretty scary, of course. So the key take-home message from this is go food first. Absolutely aim for a rainbow. And this means that you will help to ensure a sufficient supply of antioxidants that are available to naturally deal with ROS and RNS levels without dampening the adaptive response they stimulate after exercise, as would likely happen with these high-dose superphysiological levels found in supplements. So again, here's some recommended uh, reading for you. Um, the first bit of advice here is to read this uh, in-depth review, this Cochrane Review on Antioxidants for Preventing and Reducing Muscle Soreness. Uh, that's a great paper, that is. Highly recommended. Um, and um, the author of that also produced for the journal a, uh, a short podcast on it. If you don't want to read the paper, that's well worth a listen. I've got um, some in-depth podcasts on, um, on this uh, that can be found within these two podcasts here on nutrition athletic performance with Dr. Travis Thomas, and also um, this one with Dr. Brennan Roberts on hypertrophy and individual differences in responses to training, where we do cover this topic in some detail. And uh, there's also another two podcasts here that I also recommend, um, particularly this one with Professor Keith Barr, another god uh, in the field of sport and exercise nutrition on nutrition and molecular responses to strength uh, training. I think you'll enjoy that. And one of my favorite podcasts on this uh, area is uh, with Dr. Lee Hamilton on nutrient priming in the protein synthetic response. All highly recommended reading. Okay, so we haven't got too long left here and uh, we're coming to uh, one of the last topics here and that is on beta alanine and exercise performance. So anaerobic exercise requires a rapid source of energy. And glucose can be broken down rapidly to provide this energy via anaerobic glycolytic metabolic pathways. And what we find here is, of course, that lactic acid is produced. And this lactic acid will quickly become um, hydrogen ions and also lactate. And this increase in hydrogen ions makes the muscle more acidic and this is what contributes to the actual muscle fatigue that is experienced okay so what does beta alanine actually do in this situation well beta alanine is two amino acids l-histidine um, and um, beta alanine and beta alanine is the rate limiting factor in carnosine synthesis so carnosine can be thought of as the hydrogen Pac-Man, which delays the onset fatigue by buffering 
these excess hydrogen ions that have been produced. And um, research has shown that supplementing with beta uh, alanine um, actually uh, increases these levels of muscle carnosine. Um, and what the research has shown is that dosages of 6.2 grams of beta alanine per day in slow release capsules can greatly increase mu muscle carnosine levels, which is great. Also, just to be sure if you're an athlete, professional athlete, always check that they are tested by informed sport as per my previous comments. So this is great. The research is looking um, promising, but what actually does beta alanine do to enhance performance? Um, well, in the research, we've seen that it's led to faster two kilometer time trials in elite rowers. We've also seen that it's attenuated fatigue in trained sprinters. And we have seen increased strength in collegiate American football players. And we've also seen um, better sprint performance in endurance cycling. So that's good all-round evidence to give us the confidence to use beta alanine. Of course, once again, this is a, a topic I highly recommend you read into. So here's another position stand for you to read into. I've also been lucky enough to contribute to this paper. Um, and I also recommend this podcast with Professor Craig Sale and um, Dr. Abby Smith-Ryan, both leading experts in this area on beta alanine. Wow. So... We've covered a lot of technical information here today, and uh, we've survived some of the, uh, the glitches in my, uh, my slides in this, um, in this unusual way of delivering presentations. I hope you found um, these topics that we got into of interest. We talked about generally uh, performance nutrition and how they can help support adaptations to performance and training. And we looked at um, six specific areas, high-protein diets and body composition. We looked at this um, popular area of the anabolic window and muscle adaptations. We looked at creatine monohydrate and exercise. We looked at branched-chain amino acids and muscle protein synthesis. We also looked at antioxidants and exercise adaptations. And we also looked at beta-alanine and exercise performance. Um, I'm very grateful to have had this opportunity to speak to you um, at the Optima, NASM Optima virtual conference. And uh, here you can see the rest of my team here at the Institute of Performance Nutrition. Please do feel free to contact me on uh, my details here via email uh, or follow us on social media. Uh, very, very happy to answer any questions any that you will have. And I hope that you uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you very much for, for listening.